this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back. And you have your Bibles open to the passage that we read. While they're leaving, I want to tell you a story that I heard this week about a woman and her pet parakeet. Parakeet's name was Chippy. One day the woman decided she would clean out the parakeet's cage using a vacuum cleaner. She was halfway through the job when the telephone rang. So she turned to answer the phone. And before she could realize it, Chippy had disappeared. So in an absolute panic, she snapped open the front of the vacuum cleaner, ripped open the bag to find Chippy, gasping for air and covered with all the dust and bottom of a birdcage. And she immediately took action to take Chippy to the bathroom and rinse him off underneath the sink. When she got Chippy finally clean, she could see that Chippy, poor Chippy, was cold and wet. So she pulled out her hair dryer. <laughs> oh, Chippy never knew what hit him, the article said. Apparently, the woman was interviewed a few days later and asked, How is Chippy doing? This is what she said Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. <laughs> oh, poor Chippy. Chippy never knew what hit him. He just sits and stares. You know, when you, when you read the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that hit you, and you, it's like you don't know what hit you. It, it comes with such a force and at such a point that really all you're left with is just sitting and staring because something has hit you with such a force, it's overwhelmed you that you just have to take some totally undistracted time to consider what is it that God has just told me? What is it He's just revealed about Himself? And so there's some heavy, dense material in the Bible, like when you read through the book of Job, no one reads through the book of Job without, in the end, just sort of sitting and trying to process what it was that God was about in the life of Job and what was God hoping Job was going to learn and what would he want us to learn. When you read through the book of Habakkuk, you just sort of sit and stare. Habakkuk's frustration that God isn't doing things the way that he wanted him to do them. And then God says, well, Habakkuk, it's not only going to happen the way you don't think it's going to happen. It's going to be a lot worse than you think. And so you get to that point in the text, and you, you just have to sit and stare and think, what is it that God is doing here? When, when you read the account of the crucifixion, when you get to the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when you read through a passage like that, you don't need a lot of distraction. You just want to sit quietly and consider what is taking place. Psalm 88 ends with this line. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend, period. That's how the song ends. 
I mean, when you feel that way, then, then you're, you're in these moments of, I just have to sit and stare. I have to try to absorb what it is that God is trying to teach me in this moment. Well, parts of the Bible are that way, but John's letter generally is not that way. John's letter generally is uh, what I would say, what some scholars would call basic Christianity. It's, it's entry-level information. It, it, you can pick up on this by just seeing some of the terminology that we've read today and from these other chapters. The, a couple of phrases reoccur from the beginning. You see that right in the very beginning of that book, and you see it all the way through. John is bringing his congregation back to just the, the fundamental parts of Christianity. This is stuff that's been known from the beginning. Verse chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 7, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old one that you had from the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So, so John's just giving us the very entry-level information. This is basic Christianity. And then he uses this phrase, and we saw it here this morning in chapter 3, little children. It's, it's the elder apostle. It's the last living apostle. And he's probably in his 80s. And so he's transferring this information back to a, the younger group, the, young, the next generation of Christians. Some of them have just been Christians for a few years. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you. Chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Little children, let no one deceive you. You've heard this phrase, uh, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. You've probably heard it or used it. And when you use it, it's typically uh, meaning to say, you're putting all the good stuff where anyone can reach it. The smallest child can come in and get the very best pieces of what they want. And so John is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. He's saying, we're just going to get you the, the beginning, the foundations. We're going to get you basic Christianity. And anyone can enter in. Anyone can come in and understand the basic information that John is giving us. Second thing you notice about the book is that John has a fairly consistent pattern of doing two things. First, he's reminding his congregation of the gospel. He's always coming back. He starts that way in chapter 1. But you'll notice here in chapter 3 and other portions of the Scripture, he's getting you to remember the main thing, the gospel. And then secondly, he's exhorting the congregation, once you understand the gospel, then you're supposed to walk according to the light that you have now. You're, you're walking out of the darkness and into the light. That's, that's the transfer of the gospel, the information that you now know about Jesus Christ. And once you have that information, it's supposed to have an effect on your feet. And he wants to hold those two together throughout the letter. And we see it here in chapter 3. Another way maybe to say that is he gives you a critical piece of information which he assumes is going to lead to transformation. You have information, and if you have the right information, it will lead to transformation. 
Now, in this chapter, chapter 3, we see two, these two things. First, in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, the word see, or in some translations, it's behold. So he, he wants us to see something. He wants us to behold something. And, and if you see it, if you behold it, then chapter 3, verse 4, and he uses this phrase six different times in the text, make a practice. You see that? So John's coming into his congregation in this chapter, and he's just doing the same thing he's done all the time. You've got to do these things, and you've got to get them in this order. First, you've got to see something. You've got to behold it. And once you, once you really have your eyes set on that, then it's going to make a difference in how you live your life, how you practice your faith. And so let's look at those two things this morning. Now, the ESV translated, translates this word as see, which is okay, but I really think behold somehow to me has a little bit more power behind it because this is sort of John's verbal neon sign. I mean, if you've fallen asleep in reading this letter and you get to chapter 3, verse 1, he wants you to wake up. He, he, he's saying, behold, I mean, Pay attention. Something very important is going to be stated right here, and I don't want you to miss this. And so what is it that John wants us to behold? What, what is it that he says, you just can't miss this? And he says it. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Behold, pay attention. Now, the, the, this again, this phrase uh, is a little plain. So the NIV tries to sort of give it some more meat by saying this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. And Eugene Peterson in his uh, translation, just look at it. Just look at it. What a marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. Just last weekend, I went up to Asheville for Sam and Shauna's wedding. And so we're driving around Asheville, and we came down from Boone. And if you've been in that area, you get on those relatively small two-lane roads, and if you're the driver, you really better be paying attention to the road. But there's some incredible views. And so you're riding, and you're trying to view and ride, and your wife is, you know, no, no. So you're battling four or five things, and the highway department understands this. And they know it because they give you this little, what's called a scenic overlook. And you sort of get off the overlook so you don't endanger anybody in your car or another car, and you stop, and what they want you to do is just look at it. Take all the time you want. You will never get full of just looking at this one thing. And that's what John is trying to help us understand. You're never going to get tired. It's not a scenic overlook that you're going to say, well, I've had enough and now I need to move on. This is it. This is the one thing that you have to behold. And you have to keep it in front of your eyes all the time. And then he uses this interesting Greek word that's translated, what kind which literally means of what country. 
So, so behold, of what country is this love God has given to us? You see what John is doing? He's saying there's no reference point. This, this is otherworldly. I mean, if I tried to use a description from this world, it would be inadequate. So it's something of another world. It's, it's totally foreign to us. It's, it's something that we just say, what kind is this? I haven't experienced this kind of love before. It's, it's breathtaking. It doesn't have a comparison. And, and when you see it, when you behold it, you say it's of another kind. It's of no kind I know or experience. I think Paul was trying to get that, that in Romans 5. And he says this, At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we had no power... Christ died for you and I. And then he's going to try to describe this like, now very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Although sometimes somebody might die for a good person. But, but we weren't good people. We were the enemy. We were the unrighteous. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. What is that love? It's like nothing you would imagine in this world. God demonstrates it that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while you were running away from God, He died for you. It's, It's a love so foreign that no one really picks up on it in the New Testament. The the religious people don't pick up on it. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man who tries to come up and see Jesus, and he's hated. Because he's a tax collector, so he's turned his back on his own Jewish friends. He's robbing them of money, and he's the wealthy guy, and everybody wants to see Jesus. And when Zacchaeus comes in, you get the idea that everybody crowds him out. And so he goes down the road and sees a tree. He climbs out on a limb, and he reaches a certain spot that when Jesus comes down, he can see Jesus. That's all he's trying to do. And Jesus walks down that road, and he reaches that particular spot, and then he stops. The whole crowd stops. And he looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus. And what do you think everyone in the crowd is saying? Oh, he's going to get his. Yes! Finally! Revenge is the Lord. Here's the Lord. Let's see that revenge. You're just waiting for some lightning bolt or God to pick up a rock and just nail Zacchaeus. That's, that's, you're leaning in. You're wanting that. And what does he say? Zacchaeus. Hey, come down. I'd like to go to your house today. It it stuns Zacchaeus. And it stuns the crowd. It stuns the religious people. And you know why? Because then it says in Luke 19, everyone starts grumbling. Why would he go to a house of a person like that? Why? We don't understand that kind of love. We don't operate on that kind of level. This is a totally foreign level to love that we haven't really gotten. The disciples don't get it. John chapter 4, you remember the woman at the well 
They go off and get something to eat. Jesus has a significant, transforming, spiritual conversation with this woman who's been married five times. She's living now with a man who is not her husband. And she's come to the well at noon because nobody wants to be around this woman. And when the disciples come back and they see Jesus talking to this woman, what do they say? Oh, I hope it's a spiritual, transforming conversation right at this moment. Let's just get down on our knees and pray for the Lord that something would happen at this moment. Is that what they say? No. Why are you talking to her? We don't talk to these kinds of people. You see, no one understands this kind of love. It's like it comes from another world. We're not conditioned to understand the kind of love that Jesus brings to us. And when you see it, when you behold it, you just say it's from another world. And the reason it feels like it's from another world is because His love is not based on your performance. All of our love has some sort of performance orientation to it. If they're doing certain things, then I'm loving. If they're not doing them, then I'm not loving. And that's, that's this world's claim. And God has a whole different way of doing it. It's, it's, it's a love completely self-generated by God. And it's coming towards you regardless. It does not matter if you're an adulterer. I mean, it matters, but in terms of whether God's love is coming toward you, it doesn't matter. It's self-generated love. Or a thief. If you're putting people in the church to death, that kind of love is still coming towards you. That's what the Apostle Paul discovered. If you're a liar, if you're religious, if you're self-absorbed. You see, we operate on a totally different plane. And God, and John is trying to describe it, it's something of another world. He's coming towards his enemies, not towards his friends. It's what the Bible calls grace. It's what we sung about this morning. But you know, because it's so foreign, it's very easy to reject it. You can reject it as a sinner. You can say, oh, and you don't know what I've done. I, I wouldn't tell anybody the things that I think about or what I did way back then. I'm, I'm so ashamed. If God knew everything and he knew this, it would be impossible for him to love me. And so by thinking that, you actually reject his love. Most of the time you try to sort of clean up your life and hope that it goes well enough in the future that you've got something to offer. You can reject it as a religious person. Because your moral condition is so upright. And when I compare my moral condition towards all these other people, I really am better than most of these people. And so I sort of deserve something that God's going to give me. And probably these people don't. If you think that way, you're going to reject this kind of love. You're going to walk away from it because it's just God-generated love. It doesn't have anything to do with your condition. It has everything to do with God's. When we talk about the gospel being good news, 
and the reason it's just so radically different than other worldviews and other religious views is that God's love for us is not based on your condition. It's based on God's condition. Isn't that an amen? Amen! God's love for you is not based on your condition. It is based on God's condition. And God's condition never changes. Now, our condition is going to change plenty of times, but He's always moving towards us in love based on His own condition, not ours. When you behold that, when you really get your mind wrapped around that, that it's really not about what I've done. It's about what He's done. Then maybe the opening illustration about Chippy isn't right. Because if you really do behold that, it's stunning. You just sit and stare and say, it's not anything like I compare it to in this world. It's blown me away. I don't even know what's hit me when you describe love like that. I've never experienced that kind of love. That's what God is saying through the Apostle John. What kind of love? It's from a totally different world. That's what you have to behold. If you haven't held on to that, then you need to hold on to that before we move on to the next point. That's the one thing you have to have locked down into place. Before, the second point, you begin to put these things into practice. You see, in verse 1, we are now called children of God. We're reborn, or you've heard the term born again. You have a a different identity. You're coming now as a product of the God the Father. He's your Father. You have a different DNA structure. And because you have a different Father and a different DNA structure through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to act differently. You're going to move in a different direction. You're going to practice something that's different than the way you used to practice it. You'll see this word practice six times in these last few verses. Now, one of the things that's helpful to keep in mind is that John, at the end of the first century, right towards his death, is battling against this idea that's beginning to infiltrate the church. And that idea was that what really mattered in Christianity is what you believe, not how you behave. Now, now let me say that one more time because this is a very foreign first century idea and you may not have got that so just think with me think hard that that this idea has infiltrated the church i know this is a stretch but just imagine with me this idea infiltrating the church that what really mattered was that what you believe not how you behave Uh, apparently foreign to us i realize that you could have just sort of walked down the aisle sign a card or say a prayer, and then that was it. You, you're sort of in. You believed it. You nodded your head, and then you could just walk out the door and behave any way you wanted. Now, can you believe that? Can you believe a church would even think that way? Well, yes, you can. That's a very difficult and real problem we have. And John's saying in the strongest language, it matters what you believe. But if you believe the right thing, it's going to matter in your behavior. You can't separate those two. He's not trying to divide them. 
He's trying to put them together so that we can see. Now, in these verses, John uses what I would say is some of the strongest and really pretty disturbing language. Now, I want us to be sure of the first point, that your behavior doesn't create your salvation. We've, we've beheld that. We've, we've got that underneath our feet. But, I mean, I, I want us to listen to these verses and realize that a great salvation, which doesn't lead to a corresponding effect in our behavior, means that you never saw Jesus. Let me say that again, because that's a hard statement. If you have had a great salvation that has no corresponding effect in your life, then according to this text, you didn't see Jesus. Listen, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This is the evidence of those who are children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, they make me nervous. They make me really nervous. Why? Well, I keep on sinning. Now, I don't want that to be taken out of context and just blabbed all over the you know Internet. But, I mean, I find myself continuing to sin at some level. And I don't feel like I'm on the verge of conquering that. I don't think just two more days and I'm going to be there. I mean, that one moment I thought I had reached it, then I got prideful and I lost it. And so, I mean, this is a difficult passage. Because when you read it, it just seems so obvious of what you should be doing and who's in and who's not in. And I would say that this, these verses make the scholars nervous. And the reason I say that is one commentary gave seven, seven different ways this passage could be interpreted. And when you come across a scholar who needs to give you seven different ways, then there's some confusion and nervousness about what this actually means. And as I thought about these verses, I thought that maybe living in the tension isn't all that bad. I mean, isn't it when you live in tension, the first thing you want to do is just get out of the tension? Just What's the easiest way to get out of the tension? Okay, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And it may be that John just wants you to say, I just want to lay this one on you and you live with it. I want you to feel the tension of your sin. I mean, I want you to behold the grace, but I really want you to behold your practices. And I'm not going to let you sort of skinny out away from them just by beholding the grace of God. I want you to look at your practices, and if you can say, you know, I met God, but my practices didn't change, then I want you to hear me say, maybe you never met Jesus. 
And I want you to live in that tension. To examine your life. To take your sin seriously. It's no small issue in God's mind. And so maybe just the tension is helpful. It it presses you towards holiness. Where would John get an idea like this? I mean, you're going along so nicely, John. Let's just kind of move in that vein. Where would he have heard something like this, the Apostle John? How about Jesus? Good, good answer. Matthew seven twenty one. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a nerve-wracking verse. But only he who does the will of my Father. Many will say on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons or perform miracles? And then he will look at us and say plainly, I never knew you. And then he gives us this little picture. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is likewise like a man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, yet it didn't fall because it had its rock on the foundation. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, as your pastor and as your friend, I don't want any foolish people here. I don't want on that last day you say, well, look like I was doing some things. And he just says, you know what? I don't know who you are. Now, we have to behold the gospel. That's why John puts it in the order that he does. But you have to give some evaluation to your life seriously. Does your practice, are your habits changing according to what you know about the gospel? And if they don't, you might have your house built on the sand. You might have an enormous spiritual house that from my vantage point looks wonderful. It might be all built on the sand. And so we have to ask ourselves, we have to diagnose, we have to get some help from the outside, we have to help get some help from God's Word and say, well, let me examine my practice. Am I hearing God's Word or am I putting things into practice? Now, I want to just make one thing clear. I want you to leave with attention as you go, gosh, I hope he's going to unpack those seven ways and get me out of this sticky wicket I'm in. I'm not going to. But I want to clear up one thing. I don't think the passage is teaching that as Christians you enter into some kind of sinless perfection. You might hear that at some level. And I don't think that's true for several reasons. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that's so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... So John himself is seeming to indicate that you can really be a child of God. And yes, you shouldn't continue in these ways, but if you do, then you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So it doesn't seem like he's saying, yes, you you should be sinless. And it seemed to contradict Jesus' own words in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us 
of our sins. So Jesus seemed to have some understanding that you're going to need to repeat this prayer and all these things are going to be true about you as your life goes on. And certainly it contradicts your own experience. And maybe one of the best ways to look at these verses, although there are a number, is to think about what John might have been trying to communicate in verse 9 with this word seed. Something has gotten planted into our lives. He's trying to use the word seed. It's, It's gotten planted. You have beheld the Lord. And when you really got hold of that and Jesus really has hold of you, something gets planted down in that dirt. A whole oak tree does not get planted in your life, but an acorn gets planted down. And so if that seed is really planted in your life, then one day it's going to have its full effect. And he tells us when that day is going to be. Verse 2. When we see him face to face. We don't know everything that we're going to be. I love that the, the Apostle John admits that. I don't know. There's some things I don't know. But I know when we see him as he is, we are going to then really be in his likeness. This seed that got planted is now going to be full fruit. And so we should look at our lives, not necessarily are we sinless, but are we growing in a new direction? Are our habits changing? Can you see that? Can other people see that in your life? This past Easter, it was maybe Easter Sunday or maybe it was a Sunday right around Easter where your families had come in from out of town. And so after church, I was out um, outside talking to some folks and this couple came up whose older son now married and has kids in this congregation. They come up to me and say, Pastor Paul, I I just want to thank you for everything you and this church has done for my son. You know, that's a nice comment, and I usually genuinely say, I mean, look, it's been a joy. We've been happy to be a part of it. It's not a trial. We'd love to be a part of those kinds of things. And she and her husband just both, they took me by the hand. Like, we want you to behold something, Mr. Phillips. And they said, you have no idea the change that's happened in our son. And I didn't. I mean, I didn't grow up with their son. But they just wanted to make sure that I understood something got planted here that's growing in a radically different direction than what we knew when we lived with them. Thank you. The, the person isn't perfect. But they are growing. Their habits are changing. And I can say, as the pastor and for the elders, we see that in many of your lives. I'm sure some of you wake up and you say, and you look in the mirror and you say, who is that person? I don't recognize that person. Because that person 10 years ago, that person last year, would have been thinking and doing something totally different. And now, and now you're growing in a different direction. Your habits are placing you in to more and more conformity with the Word of God. If you're here this morning, whether you're just considering Christianity or you've been a Christian for 50 years, it's time to, to get off the highway and get on the scenic overlook. And just behold. Don't try to fix anything or do anything. Just behold the love of God. That it's complete, it's it's a love from a, a different world. And let that sink all the way through you. 
And if you are calling yourself a Christian, let's live in the tension this week. Where, where have you built your nest? See, one day, everyone's going to know. And you can fool me easily. But one day, you will see him as he is. And we will find out who built their house on the sand and who built their house on the rock. And you can gain great confidence. You cannot gain your salvation, but you can gain great confidence in a great salvation if you see that the habits of your life are changing away from yourself and towards the Savior. Let's pray together.